James Lee Burke, um, a phenomenal writer, more than 30 novels under his belt at this time, I believe. Um, he was the uh, winner of two Edgar Awards and named Grandmaster by the, Mas- by the Mystery Writers of America. Um, Jim lives in uh, Missoula, Montana. He's a uh, prolific writer, one of the one of the best storytellers out there. Good morning, this is Greg Grasso, and you're listening to Chapter One. So we have James Lee Burke on the phone this morning. How are you, sir? Well, good morning. Thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. Uh, been uh, I've got a number of authors. Uh, you were on my list, so I get to knock you off now. <laughs> but um, okay, let's 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 go on that knockoff thing. I want you to. Uh, I, I'd like you to give us a, a little sketch of your uh, latest novel. A I believe it was uh, just released in uh, July, uh, Wayfaring Stranger. Um, so why don't you why don't you give us a little uh, idea of what this book's about, Jim? Well, it's uh, narrated by a member of the Holland family, about whom I've written before. It starts in uh, 1934 with a an encounter between the narrator Weldon Holland and Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow, and another gangster named Raymond Hamilton. Then the story goes from there to the Battle of the Bulge and the post-war years. But it's really a story about uh, the what Gord Vidal once referred to as the Golden Age, uh, those years after the Second World War when America entered a new era, that's what some people call the New American Empire. Mm-hmm. There were... Um, well, World War II was... Uh lasted a few years. Uh, the war got over. People uh, went back to their lives. Um, what is, uh, wh- where's the, where's the, uh, the hook in this book? What, what's, what's going on with this vet? Well, the main character comes back to the United States with a girl he found in an extermination camp inside Nazi Germany. She was buried under a pile of corpses, and her name is Rosita Lowenstein, and they marry in Paris and return to Texas, and he enters the oil and natural gas business, but he discovers that the anti-Semitism he fought against in Europe uh, is still alive and well in his own country. And the story deals with uh, some pernicious people that he he encounters in the oil business. Uh, but it also deals with Hollywood and uh, the time in which I grew up. The book is dedicated to my cousin, my first cousin, Weldon Benbow Millette, who uh, walked all the way across Europe to the Elbe River and lived through many of the events that I describe in the book. Hmm. Wow. Did you... Look up to him as a kid. Oh yeah, yeah. Weldon was a grand, grand fellow. Uh, the story also deals with the Song of Roland, the chivalric ballad of the uh, Charlemagne's uh, battle in the northern Pyrenees. It deals with the Lamar Lamar d'Artour, the story of Arthur Weldon, the young fellow that encounter who encounters Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, is enamored with Bonnie Parker. She was not the homely-looking person chewing on cigars that we see in photographs. She was actually a 
quite attractive. But anyway, his their story becomes his later on in life. But the novel itself deals with the way in which we arrived in the era, the beginnings of the 21st century, where we are today historically. We're walking in the footsteps of the British and the French. and uh, It's my best book, certainly. It's um, far beyond anything I've written previously. Well... Yeah, you you've written quite a few books. Uh, you've got what over thirty now. Well, I've or published uh, thirty three novels Jeez. and two collections of stories. Yeah. What? Um, how'd you how'd you start writing, Jim? Uh, I mean, what 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 drove you to this amazing career? Well, I published my first story when I was nineteen, mm-hmm. and I began my first novel when I was. 21, 20 or 21. I finished it on a pipeline when I was 23. That was half a paradise, and I've been doing it ever since. Hmm. It's cheaper than psychoanalysis. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty cool. What did you do on the pipeline? Were you a mechanic or? I was a a surveyor. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. I went into the Seabees as an engineering aide. Um, Is that right? Yeah, early 70s, yeah. Yeah, I uh, got to go to a beautiful island called Diego Garcia, smack in the middle of the Indian Ocean. <laughs> oh, I see. So I missed I missed combat, which I'm very thankful for. Uh, yeah, very thankful for. Um, you grew up in Texas. You grew up with the oil uh, barons and all the all the stuff that goes with that. Um, so, so these veterans coming back after World War II, um, what you know, what was so uh, what was so alarming? I mean, what what hadn't changed in rural America? Well, I grew up on the Texas Louisiana coast. The book deals with um, some of the oh, of course, the the underside of a. The story has to do with people who are predatory in nature, and of course they're mm-hmm. part of any economy. Mm-hmm. But by and large, it deals with the optimism that defined the era. And it was a time of national unity. And there were two portals through which a person could enter what was almost a magical kingdom, just amounts of wealth that were unimaginable earlier. And that was... Hollywood and the oil industry. And so people who had lived, people who were very improbable moguls became one, became moguls. And uh, it was... (laughs) It was like people would turn on the radio and think, "My heavens, if this guy could, <laughs> this could happen to this guy, it could happen to me." But it seemed to be just that sometimes, just dumb luck. <laughs> but it was just quite a time to be around, and you know, people can call that nostalgia if they wish. But the truth is that my generation, those born in the Depression, will be, in all probability, the last to remember what people call traditional America. Uh, We live in a different era, for good or bad, but traditional America has slipped into history. So I hope this book records some of those events with a 
degree of accuracy. We meet some great people. We meet Benny Siegel and his companion, Virginia Hill. Mm -hmm. I remember when they were at the Shamrock Hotel at the opening in 1947. It was a big event, and thousands of people came there. It was a social disaster. Nothing worked. All of the electrical equipment (laughs) broke down. Thousands of people were drunk. But there was Benny Siegel. (laughs) Listen, this is a fact. He bought the home next to Jack Warner in Beverly Hills. Here's Jack Warner, one of the wealthiest, most powerful men in America, certainly in the entertainment industry. And suddenly, his next-door neighbor is a psychopath who used to come through the hedge into Warner's lawn parties, would walk unexpectedly into the kitchen, into the living room, without knocking. And Warner evidently was terrified of this man. Well, anyone would be. Benny Siegel actually got a screen test. Nobody in Hollywood was willing to say, I'm sorry, we don't cast psychopaths. But Benny's a great character in the book. No, no way. No freaking way. Oh, my God. So uh, where where did this casino open up? Uh, I, no, I, I no it's the Shamrock Hotel. Shamrock Hotel. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's well, still there. I think it's owned by the Hilton Corporation oh, now. So but it was built by a, a wildcatter, a man who was very good at drilling for oil. He was not educated. He was, was very poor, grew up car- carrying water for drilling crews at Spindletop, but he built the Shamrock, and he was a remarkable man. And there were many people like that around back then, and hmm. I remember some of them. Yeah, let's see. Who did I? Oh man. Oh, uh, Zuckerman. Zuckerman just wrote a book called The Frackers. Okay. Uh huh. Have you read that yet? No, I haven't. Oh man. Um. Yeah, because it goes back. It goes back to these. Um, uh, guys that became oil barons uh, during the uh, 30s and 40s in uh, in, in Texas, um, and uh, like you said before, some people just walked into this. You know, some landowners. Uh, you know, there were some big landowners, I guess, at the time, and and uh, uh, they didn't know they had oil on there till the oil companies came in, I guess. So a lot of people got wealthy back then. Um, uh, which which drove uh, I guess the greed within the industry because there is a lot of greed in this industry I would suspect. Well, it <laughs> <laughs> I I can't say <laughs> you can't say <laughs> unbelievable. Um, now this the the you know the 30s and 40s to me uh, um, I was born in 54 so I don't I don't know squat but I do uh, um, I, I do talk to authors that uh, have written historical fiction around that time uh, uh it was a it was a uh, it was a hard time but uh, a lot of a lot of people made their bones i guess during that time um well this so. story is it's not about economics it's about the perseverance and eventually the fact that an honorable man the narrator of the story weldon hollow can right. prevail even in the worst of times, that in effect, he begins to 
see that the only role for a conscionable human being in an unconscionable time is never to give an inch, not one bloody inch. And that's the way you do it. That's the way he won the war. He and those guys that went to the Elbe River, they didn't give an inch. No. No, they... And that's the mark of the nighty rant, you mm-hmm. see. And mm-hmm. in the book, we meet other people who strangely go through transformations when they discover they're better people. They are better people than they ever gave themselves credit for being. The third party in the encounter with Bonnie and Clyde is a gunsel named Raymond Hamilton. He would he had been in East Ham Pen. That's part of the um, Huntsville prison complex. It was a terrible place. And Bonnie and Clyde went into the prison. They shot their way into the prison and took Raymond and two other guys out. Raymond died in the electric chair at Huntsville, but he died with a great deal of courage and dignity. He found it just before his death. And so people whom we often dismiss as pathological, we discover are, they are indeed our brothers and sisters. They have that same light that the rest of us were born with. They somehow rediscover it. Not always. In fact, maybe it's the exception. But George Orwell once said this, people are always better than we think they are. They go down, they keep their mouths shut in the torture chamber. They go down with the decks awash and the gun still blazing. It's a great statement. That is a great statement. Wow. Wow. Um, so, a little bit about um, your style of writing. Uh, you write like a uh, you you write like a movie script, which which I love. Um, great storytelling uh, uh, ability, I think. Um, uh, and your 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 books are I don't know they're 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 easy to read for me, and I don't know why that is. I mean. Uh, um, have you have you kept your writing style all these years? Have you have you had to adapt um, based on uh, the audience? Or um, uh, but you sound like a, a guy who's true to himself, so you probably just do your thing and call it good, right? No, I don't call it good. I hope no. somebody else does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're never satisfied, then, huh? The. Uh, <clears throat> A writer's style is usually acquired over a long period of time, and I started reading when I was young, and uh, anyone who wants to be a writer would probably say the same thing, that he he learns from others, and so you try to read the best. And I was influenced a lot by Ernest Hemingway and James T. Farrell, and mm. uh, certainly William Faulkner and Eudora Welty and Catherine Porter and but you only read the good guys. You read the. Good, it's like watching bad tennis. You don't do it. It'll mess up your game. <laughs> the same is true in art. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it, and you do consider writing an art form, which which I do also. I mean, uh, I I I could never be a writer because I could never get out of my head what I'm really trying to say. I think it takes a takes a little bit of a talent. Um, do you think? Uh, well, you grew, you were a depression baby, you said, and uh, uh, 
what was your what was your uh, childhood like? Uh, it must have been tough. Uh, obviously, you're a tough guy. You're a persistent guy. No, no, I, no, no. This, I appreciate what you're saying, and but um, the, the, I'm not important. Uh, growing up in the depression, there was uh, there was a benchmark. If your dad had a job, you were in tall cotton. Yeah. And you see that in 1933, I think something like 23% of the workforce was unemployed. And so you saw it everywhere, people who were really suffering. My dad had a job on the pipeline. He was an old-time pipeline man, an oil and uh, actually a natural gas engineer. But um, no one had any money. But, um, Greg, the, the difference was it's like missing something you never had. So we weren't really conscious of privation. We knew there were others who were truly unfortunate. They were homeless and uh, they had nothing to eat. Hmm. But by and large, I would say that on balance, we enjoyed life more, as strange as that might sound today, because we appreciated, we took great joy in what we had. For example, not everyone owned a radio, so on Friday nights, one family would put a radio in the windowsill and would turn on the, the fights broadcast by Bill Stern from Madison Square Garden. It was a really happy event, people sitting on the lawn and on a summer evening, all listening to the radio t- together. To go to a film, you see, was quite a treat. It cost 10 cents, <laughs> but it was hard to come by 10 cents. And the radio was the, kind of a magical uh, conduit into Hollywood. We were assured nightly, as Weldon says, that movie stars live next door to us. We listened to the Jack Benny show, and Jack Benny was always talking about Ronald Coleman living next door to him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, there was a sense, a, a shared sense of celebration after the war, I'll never forget it, on VJ Day, people just went crazy. In New Orleans, this is a fact, the strippers came out of the bars on Bourbon Street, went down to Canal, and the streets were filled with people celebrating. They took off their clothes on Canal Street. Of course, young kids just thought that was a great way to celebrate the end of this terrible war. But that was the sense, and this is what I've never understood about the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm. I would have thought Americans would have been dancing in the street. My God in heaven, the Cold War is over. That terrible nuclear threat that was hanging over us, like you know, in the early 1960s, October of 1962, mm-hmm. we got through it. But that never happened. That celebratory mo- moment never came. And maybe we're not out of it. You know, maybe the risk is still there. I guess it is, not to the degree it was 50 years ago. But anyway, VJ Day was a great day in the Western world. And uh, the the 10 years that followed, I guess from 45 to 55, are probably, like the 1920s, a definitive decade if you think about it what what are the two periods in our history for which we're forever nostalgic it's the 1920s and the late 40s and early 50s the cars the music the sense of again as though 
spring is eternal after all that mortality doesn't have a claim on us. It's a celebration of youth. Maybe it's an illusion, but it's a pretty, pretty good one. In other words, it's a party, and it's it's just wonderful to be invited to it. Mm-hmm. And I've never learned much wisdom in life. I'm in the, you know, I'm a, I'm old. <laughs> I never acquired much wisdom. If it comes with age, it certainly eluded me. But I think every person my age will say the same thing. The great mysteries remain the great mysteries. You learn two things and two things only. It's family and friends and enjoying the day you have. It's a grand party. Don't ignore the invitation. If people have regret and remorse... It's not because of the things they did. It's because of the things they, they didn't, didn't do. do. Yeah, that's okay. the way it works. I agree. But with you that. can't pass on the lesson. That's the other. That's the downside of age. Well, you right. cannot pass on the lesson. Right. I I I look at young kids today. You know, and uh, it's like, my God, these kids. Boy, I you know they just don't understand. Uh, they just don't understand or they can't see what's going on i mean yeah i remember duck and cover in grade school or parochial school i should say during the 60s and you know the threat of um, uh, nuclear proliferation and all this other stuff and yes uh, we did break down the wall with uh, with uh, reagan you know he he helped facilitate that but it it you know the people were ready um uh, Germany had been split for years. Uh, uh, this, you know, when, actually, when you look back at the Cold War and you look back at the relationship between the Soviet and the U.S. spies, it's quite comical because <laughs> um, you knew you knew who the bad guy was back then, and there were rules. I guess uh, you know. Uh, I'll, I'll give you some info. You can give me some info. Um, so what's going on today, Jim? What do you what do you see happening today? Um, do you see this generation coming up? Uh, uh, this this new generation coming up? Um, you know these these kids uh, being thrown into this tech world and. Uh, wh- I don't think the world changes. Yeah, I don't think yeah. it changes. The most informative book I've ever written or read was is. The History of the Church mm. by um, Eusebius, who was a 4th century uh, Christian historian. Mm. But it's not a story. The story is not about the Church. It's about the Roman Empire during mm. the time of Constantine. Mm. And when we read this first-hand account, we suddenly discover, my heavens, they're us. Nothing has changed. Mm. The same people are there, the the altruists, the martyrs, the stand-up guys, the fellows always working the angles, the degenerates uh, like Nero, the the imperialist. Mm -hmm. Nothing has changed, and the issue is always the same. It's power and control. Mm -hmm. It never changes from the time we fell out of a tree... Until the present, mm-hmm. the cast has remained the same. Only the faces have changed. Mm-hmm. The issues all remain the same. So we haven't learned a damn thing. <laughs> we keep making the same mistakes. 
Um, why? <laughs> well, but we have to look at the other side of the equation, and I appreciate what you say. It's true. We're, we're inflicted with the same character defects, or that's the wrong term for them. The same forms of vulnerability are simply in the gene pool. Our greatest susceptibility is fear. And fear is easily inculcated in the great masses of people. And when that occurs, our virtues, chiefly our desire to rally around the flag, is used against us. As Samuel Johnson once said, the last resort of every scoundrel is the flag. Mm. But it goes back to something early in the human family. When we feel threatened, when we become frightened, we always listen to the voice of the opportunist. This is when the man in the wings, the martial figure, appears in our midst. And he gets uh, and a, a level of attention that he would not have otherwise. That's our great vulnerability, always, fear. Fear is at the base of all of our problems. It's inculcated in us. There's that, always that voice whispering, be afraid, be afraid. Yeah, you're scaring the hell out of me, Jim. Actually, uh, that's the wrong term, but you you are <laughs> you, you got some depth to you, man. I like I like yeah, I like Well, I like, that's very nice. No, I really. You got it, some depth. I mean, Jesus. Good Lord. Well, the new book deals with some of these things and we we meet the uh, players in, during the McCarthy era. And some of them will probably be recognizable. I had to wait over 50 years to write this book because <laughs> it's the most biographical one I've written. And it deal, and some of the names are not changed. Mm -hmm. And it was a great time to be around, but it was also a time where fear was deliberately inculcated mm -hmm. in large numbers of people. Yes. Yeah. I know, and I, I look at how politics is being played today, and it's... Eh. I guess politics is the same. It's just that. Uh, well, I guess I guess things have always been kept uh, abreast uh, with with the American people. But yeah, I guess we can always. Well, you know, if 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 we go if we go with our heart, if we go with with the basic soul of a of a human being, if we if we enable ourselves to give of to give. Um, if we, if we, uh, if we're empathetic, if we're compassionate, if we just give a damn about something, ever, you know, especially about people, and uh, I guess it could be a, a different world. It's just it's going to take a long time, I guess. Um, That's the big one, isn't it? Yeah, to to realize we we all have a common ancestor. Yeah, we real do, we really do. Um, yeah, you're right. Values haven't really changed. Uh, the human psyche really hasn't changed. Um, we still deal with the same demons that we've been dealing with since day one. You're right. You're right. I I I, I study World War II history, and I um, I'm amazed at uh, uh, the parallels uh, of of that time and and today. It it, it just blows me away. If you ever, if you ever have a chance, Greg, the, the most informative book that I've ever read about the modern era mm. is T 
T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia's book, mm. The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Yeah. It's his autobiographical account of the Desert War, 1915 to 1918. It's an incredible book. It's like a sonnet. He was one of the most lyrical writers of modern times Mm -hmm. and an extraordinary human being. But in this book, he says, the issue is energy. Mm -hmm. That is the issue. It was the issue in 1914. It's the issue in 2014. But it's a marvelous book about the disparity in the culture of the East and the Occidental world. And he says something in there I've never forgotten. He said the essential difference between the, he, he calls it the vision of the Bedouin, the people he fought alongside. You know, he was, he was a tremendous strategist. Uh, strategist. He studied the tactics mm-hmm. of Stonewall Jackson and Jeb Stewart, mm-hmm. except he used armored Rolls Royce um, uh, open-air vehicles mm-hmm. rather than mounted cavalry. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the point is, he says, in the desert, the Bedouin, meaning this fictitious Arab he's talking about, sure. looks upon God in a way that reflects the immensity of the desert, and he feels that he himself is inside the deity. The Occidental, those who descend from the Judeo-Christian heritage, going back about 3,500 years, believe they, in effect, ingest divinity through communion with God, with the Eucharist. He said, the Bedouin, on the other hand, becomes part of the molecular structure of the desert, and hence feels that he is invulnerable, that he, in effect, at that moment, is not capable of dying and has no fear of anything. And this is a man you never want to have as your enemy. Mm-hmm. That's in the first chapter of the book. It's the best psychological and anthropological statement I ever read about the essential differences in the cultures. And, of course, uh, you know, he was an imperialist. He believed in imperialism, but he also believed in honor. And he believed that, he said, the issue was actually oil and wheat. And he said both the British, whom he served, and the French had only one agenda in the sands of <laughs> northern Africa, mm-hmm. and it wasn't to spread democracy. No, it was not. <laughs> <laughs> No, it was not. The oil wells are clanking right on the other side of the sand dunes. Oh, Lord. Spread of democracy, huh? Well, 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 but anyway, it's a great book. Wow. I'm going to leave it at that. Unbelievable. Uh, and uh, if you, anyone, when people finish reading that book, maybe they'll read mine. Uh, if they have I, time. I think you got enough. I think you got enough followers out there, Jim. You're going to well, be okay. Um, well, thank. <laughs> um, wow, this has been really very, very cool. I got to get you back on the air because there's oh. so many things I want to ask you. After finding out that uh, uh, you're an extremely uh, sensitive guy. Um, because uh, I can tell, and uh, you're you're quite uh, uh, true to yourself. And, well, thanks. Uh, 
you seem like just a real guy, you know. And, well, thank uh, you. I appreciate it. No. Uh, hell of a writer, too, folks. James Lee Burke, Wayfaring Stranger. Um, one of Jim's best reads so far. Pick it up today. Take care. <laughs>